0: So you were getting made fun of yesterday during your tech check?
1: <laughs> yeah, I was making all sorts of crazy sounds and then I started whistling and trying to like do a vibrato which you know, I'm not I can't do. I'm not a singer, but it just I'm easily
0: amused. So, <laughs> let's hear the whistle. Oh my gosh, you sound like a bird.
1: <laughs> so, i mean now it's record it's different obviously it looks different when it's recording but when um when i was testing it, you just sort of see the frequency change
0: right oh right you don't see the actual waveform in it right full. so i was right.
1: playing with the frequency stuff and trying to you know hold it at a certain wave
0: pattern or i, I don't know well it's kind of fun isn't it It, re- it really was. yeah but anyway leave it to a, a child to uh Keep us humble and, and <laughs> honest when we're big. <laughs> it's Jessica Marquart, and welcome to Kaleidoscope, the podcast where we talk about cortical visual impairment, or CVI, where we hear real stories about brain-based visual impairment, particularly how it affects those who live with it. Welcome to Kira Brady of Massachusetts. Her son Mason is a rising kindergartner who has CVI, First, she reflects on his journey to diagnosis. Then Kira and I chat about the flashes of insight and the momentary blind spots we all experience as parents. Anyway, what's so? What's your fam up to, to today?
1: Oh, okay. So you asked me what my wife's name is. Her name. Oh is yeah. Okay.
0: Her name's Jessica. <laughs> yeah.
1: Her name is Jess. Um. um anyway, she's taking them to get donuts. Um, okay. The Dunkin' Donuts drive-through is open. Nice. And then they have their iPads in case they get bored in the car. But I think they're just going to drive around.
0: That will be a thrill at this point.
1: Yeah, it will. We were thinking about taking them. There are a lot of trails near us. The Massachusetts Rail Trail system is awesome. Um, But as of the sixth, everybody over age two is supposed to be wearing a mask and that's just not going to
0: happen. Yeah. Yesterday, Dan took Grace to get an x-ray done. Everything's fine, but she just, she had to have it done for an upcoming appointment that Uh will be a telehealth situation. But they of course had to go in for the x-ray and they required her to wear a mask. And Mm -hmm. he said she threw an absolute fit. Mm -hmm. And I tried to explain to her, you know, if we want to have more freedom in the coming months and go places, we're going to have to get used to the idea of having our face covered but right
1: Kind to have to start practicing it you know
0: a minute at a time or... I mean it is on un- it is uncomfortable to have all that your hot breath like <laughs> circulating against your face I've
1: been just grocery shopping once a week but every time I go I'm like I feel like I'm suffocating yeah <laughs> which I mean so bless the people who are wearing them all day as they work
0: right oh it's hard So we will probably get back in our conversation to talking about, you know, how you are keeping Mason busy and what he's enjoying these days. But let's start at the beginning. And so go back and tell us about, you know, some of the delights and challenges you faced when Mason and his twin brother Logan were born.
1: I mean, they were conceived via IVF for Partly for obvious reasons, um, but also um, I had some significant like infertility challenges. So they were they came after at least a dozen attempts. Oh wow! And a couple losses as well. So just getting them here <laughs> was a big deal. Yeah, the boys were born at 32, 32 weeks six days. So almost thirty three weeks, which is pretty damn good. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, I said damn. Yeah.
0: That's okay. I think <laughs> I think mostly adults listen to this. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. um, so pretty good. And my water broke on St. Patrick's Day, and then they were born on the following day. Um, so we were lucky to have almost a full twenty four hours, and I got the steroid shots to develop their lungs. So they were on room air. Logan needed a tiny bit of supplemental oxygen right after being born. But other than that, they were on room air from birth. um, And we had, you know, I think what you would call the easiest NICU journey ever. They were there for just under a month, but really it was just learning how to keep themselves, you know, keep up your body temp, eat by mouth, the normal like apneas and bradycardias that all preemies do. And they went home. You know, at just over four pounds each. Um, But they were really, really pretty healthy for for preemie twins, you know. It it sucks to leave your babies in the hospital when you go home, right? And of course, I would have brought them home right away if I could. But Nikki was also almost sort of a blessing. (laughs) Right. Because, you know, I had McKenna at home. She had just turned four. The end of my pregnancy was awful. You know, I had preeclampsia which we didn't find out until I was hospitalized after my water broke. Hmm. Um, but we should have su- suspected because they gained 12 pounds in a week.
0: Um. <laughs> I had that with Grace. I mean, that water retention is oh, it's just lovely. Wonderful. It is lovely. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it gave you time to rest a little bit more than you would have if you had brought them home. And I imagine the nurses get them on schedule.
1: Yes. Oh, very you know, every three hours and a pretty strict schedule. We were also blessed because they took the same journey and they came home at the same time. And it, it really, it just, it worked out for the best. I was, I was sleeping well. I was getting up in the middle of the night to pump unless I slept for mm-hmm. the alarm. <laughs> but, you, know, you know, it was way more rest than I got when they actually came home.
0: Right. Um, and so then when they did come home, what was that like? Did you notice anything about, either one of them that, that seemed anything other than your typical infant?
1: Yeah. So Jess, I don't really remember the first year of their life. (laughs) I I mean, you know, I remember Vincent, but it was, it was just chaos. It was pure survival mode for that whole first year. Certain things went well, like they both learned to nurse and I imagine that that is a lot easier than having to make bottles all day for two babies, and they slept pretty, like they napped pretty well during the day, and they actually were not terrible sleepers at night. Um, it's just that when there's two of them, they don't wake up at the same time, and it, it just right. chaos. I yeah, I, I don't remember a lot of it. <laughs> Maybe <I'm laughs> um, they were, but they were adorable babies and so cute, and so just brought us so much joy. And watching McKenna with them was really fulfilling because you know we we worked so hard to for her to have siblings we actually were we were kind of focused on logan in the beginning when they came home from nicu he was a full pound smaller than mason at birth okay and he had low muscle tone you know if you didn't hold his if he wasn't swaddled right and you were holding him behind his head you know sort of your palm in between his shoulder blades you know supporting head and back the rest of his body would just be hanging off to the side, right? His arms would hang limp to the side. His legs would hang limp. He was, he was like a noodle. So trying to like bathe him or anything was just really stressful. Um, Mason in comparison, I think we may have undervalued some of the early signs of high muscle tone because (laughs) Logan was such a noodle that we just assumed in comparison, Mason seemed, you know, stiff. Or people would say, he's so strong, he's so strong for a baby, you know, he's got core muscles, he's so strong. It's like, well, no, it's just rigidity, actually. <laughs> now, right. now we know it's just, it's not, it's not strength, right? It, it was high muscle tone. Sometimes Mason just seemed agitated, just uncomfortable, agitated, and we couldn't figure it out. Um, you know, you meet all the needs. And he was still not happy.
0: I remember you saying when we first got to chat that looking back, you now see some of the signs of his visual impairment. So, what are some examples or, or clues that that were there?
1: I never felt at the time, you know. I never thought like, oh, he's not looking at me, or he's not focusing on things, or you know, he did reach for toys in certain situations. I also realized looking back that we just by luck did a lot of things that probably set him up for success. Like Jess and I are very, like we, we have a very simple style. We hate curtains. We like just solid colors on the wall. And I grew up actually in a situation of hoarding. So clutter really freaks me out. Yeah. Um, so things are very <laughs> uncluttered and neat and, you know, solid colors versus patterns and so just by luck that probably really helped him versus you know playing on his tummy on a carpet that was super patterned versus just a solid color you know I told I told you before about there's one particular picture that I took the boys were on the couch and in a good mood and at that super chubby like four to six month post NICU phase where they're they gain weight faster than length and they're just Balls of pudge. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to take this uh, cute picture of them. And the flash went off. You know, I didn't mean for the flash to go off, but whatever setting, the flash went off. And in the picture, it turned out to be this hilarious photo because Logan was super startled and so his hands kind of came up in this like ninja pose and his eyes got really big and his face was shocked and horrified um and it was just this hilarious photo because of Logan's reaction but now looking back Mason in the picture has just no no affect whatsoever Mm. his even if you if you like zoom in like his pupils didn't react his face didn't change just nothing. Right. So I can't go back in time, but I'm assuming the flash just didn't register. Like he just didn't even register it. And I have another, I have a video and I'm holding a red block again, coincidentally, (laughs) um, I'm holding a red block, you know, sort of, I don't know, maybe six to 10 inches from his face. And I was trying to get him to reach for it. He was probably 11 months old, 12, maybe a year. And I remember I was documenting it because I was trying to explain to, you know, by that time we had started seeing some specialists and he was in PT. Um, And I was trying to explain, like, I don't think he can lift his arms when he's on his back or in certain other positions. Like he's not He's not reaching for things unless he's in a certain certain setup, and so I was trying to show them. So I'm holding the block in front of his face, and I'm like showing in the video that he sees it. Right, he's, he looks at it to the left, he looks at it to the right, but he's not. But he's not reaching for it. And then at the end of the video, he looks away from the block and then manages to grab it. And so now I'm like, oh, that's pretty classic. But it's not anything right. I would have noticed
0: then. Right. It's it's kind of a a subtle thing if you're not trained to look for the fact that if a child can't look and reach simultaneously it means it's overload for them so then you you went to a bunch of physicians oh my yeah before you ever even received a cvi diagnosis or started to understand that you know that's that's what he was experiencing tell us about that journey
1: um so in the beginning, he started PT at four months old for torticollis. What is that? Torticollis, some people refer, refer to it as like rye neck, right? Or um, when, it, when it's in an adult, it can be you have a, you injured your muscle, or you somehow made the muscle um, in your neck tight. And so it usually involves a head tilt and a head turn. So congenital torticollis, it's pretty common in twins because they're cramped, there's not a lot of space and they don't get to move around. Um, The way that a singleton would, and it's also common in babies who ultimately have cerebral palsy, that high tone in his neck and shoulder was actually our first, you know, sort of indication of what was going on. At the same time, he was missing milestones. Uh, Initially, we thought it was sort of expected for them to be, for both boys to be delayed on milestones, but Mason was more delayed than Logan. So eventually we did an avow through early intervention. And so however they score it, he he technically didn't, like he got, you have to get lower than 85, right? To qualify. And he got like an 86. Oh gosh. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but she wrote this rationale that made this long, long list, right? Of all the reason, all the indicators. And she wrote concern for possible motor disorder. And so he got PT twice a week. And we pretty quickly thereafter ended up
0: with OT and speech. And this was all through your early intervention program when you were living in New York.
1: Right. And I asked our pediatrician, I knew he had CP before he actually got a diagnosis. And I pointed out the high tone and and some things to the pediatrician. And he sent us an ultrasound of Mason's brain, which was totally normal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so he was like, all right, so we're good. (laughs) So I did some research myself and found out that an ultrasound is really not the most effective screening tool for PVL, which is periventricular leukomalacia. It, it is if you're in the NICU, right? So babies in the NICU who are born prematurely, if they're born before 32 weeks, they're routinely screened for PVL via head ultrasound. Um, and it looks at the ventricles. So periventricular means surrounding the ventricles. Um, leukomalacia means basically damage to the white matter. Of the brain around the ventricles, but because the boys were born at thirty-two weeks
0: six days, they weren't screened. It's like you're missing all of these opportunities just by being a, just slightly above the the baseline. Yes, that's Mason's life like
1: that's <laughs> it's that is constant. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that's on my list of of things, right? If I had you know endless time and resources, I would really love to work to change that screening protocol. So there are all these risk factors, right? Twin pregnancy, premature rupture of membranes. I was Group B strep positive. My water was you know broke a while before they were born, um, which increases your risks. And it was it was Mason's. You know, Mason's water broke, they were in separate sacks. Mm -hmm. If there was a point system or or some other way to say, look, here's a grouping of risk factors, this kid, even though he's 32 weeks, six days, should be screened also. Mm
0: -hmm. But whatever, I don't have endless time and resources. So. someday, someday you will have more time.
1: Someday it'll, it'll work out either way. Yeah. So the ultrasound showed nothing. And so for a while, we sort of let it settle. And then I went back to the pediatrician and, you know, just expressed my concern again. And so he set us up with a referral to a pediatric neurologist. So our first neurologist ordered an MRI. (laughs) So he had to be sedated for that. And I got the results in his patient portal, a full week before the neurologist called me. <laughs> okay.
0: Were you able to ascertain anything from what you yeah. saw there? Okay.
1: Um, so it said he had PBL. There are various classifications. So, you know, it's mild, moderate, severe, essentially. And you can have cystic PBL or non cystic PBL. I'm sorry, my dog is being obnoxious. I never Hi, you're fine. So, yeah. So cystic. Um, means that there are places where the damage was enough to cause um, essentially holes, right, where there's no longer brain matter. Non-cystic means it didn't cause that. So Mason had moderate bilateral, meaning both sides of the brain, cystic PBL, and it also damaged his corpus callosum which is the bundle of nerve fibers that connect the two hemispheres of the brain. So, I mean PVL is the most common cause, most common cause of CP in preemies. It's the most common cause of CP now because so many NICU babies preemies survive whereas many many years ago, right, it was the more common causes were um, extreme jaundice, some sort of lack of oxygen um, or birth-related trauma, things like that. Right. So we quickly ended up moving Mason's Care to Boston Children's Hospital, because, even when we were in New York. So yeah, that first neurologist wouldn't diagnose CP. And that that is an old um, school of thought, is that we wait until after age two, to make the diagnosis to sort of see how things shake out. And the, um, the Cerebral Palsy Foundation um, and a fantastic doctor named Karen Pape, who literally wrote the book on neuroplasticity, both have made a push for early diagnosis. Um, Mason was diagnosed it formally at 18 months, even though we knew the MRI. Our first visit at Children's, the first doctor we saw was Ortho, and he hadn't even laid his hands on Mason yet. But I had this big folder of paperwork, and he read some things we sent, and he looked at some things in the file, and and whatever. And he hadn't even touched Mason yet, and he turned to me and he was like, "Okay, so in kids with CP, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it was just that obvious." And I just, it just. Uh, You know, it's it's a relief, but then it's also you're just frustrated because, you know, I had to travel out of state for somebody to say it's obvious. To
0: say that, yeah. So did you get a CVI diagnosis shortly after that, or was that still another couple steps?
1: So Mason started having some events that were concerning procedures around, kind of around that same time or a little bit after around age two. Um, And so we were back and forth to Boston a lot for EEGs. I actually, you know, I stayed in hotels with him overnight because they do like ambulatory EEGs. And so we would go to the hospital and they put the whole setup on and then we would leave and go to tool around Boston, go to the aquarium and stay in our hotel and go back a day or two later and get the EEG taken off. He started on seizure medication shortly after that. And he was extremely, extremely speech delayed. So we just... There were just so many other things going on, you know. Somehow, we we still, I guess, the vision stuff wasn't still wasn't at the top of the list, right? At that time, probably as he gained confidence and he got better at walking and he was moving through the environment, we were starting to notice more things that were concerning. So he walked over top of anything on the floor, toys as if they just weren't there. So he fell a lot. And as he started to get moving a little bit faster and he and Logan were playing together and you know chasing, I mean, he just, he hit everything. He walked into door frames. He walked into our kitchen cabinets. He hit his head on the corners of everything. He was terrified to go downstairs. He couldn't step down yet. That took a while because of the CP, but you know just in even carrying him down the stairs he would you know cling tight to me there just was clearly something going on visually the very first doctor we went to was just our local optometrist who said he's too young bring him back when he's 3 a friend of mine recommended recommended a developmental optometrist we went to mm-hmm. see him an hour and a half away maybe and he was really helpful in a lot of ways in that he recognized that something was going on. We went next to a pediatric ophthalmologist. They actually put his vision at that time as kind of poor, but I know now that that was more um, his lack of ability to communicate what he was seeing. You know, nothing wrong with his eyes. And I specifically asked about CVI, and... She said that it was something that could only be diagnosed in older kids after ruling out every other cause of the visual behaviors. How did you know to ask? Um, because I'm a research psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> um, Comes in handy. <laughs> yeah. um, I actually taught swim lessons to a little boy with CBI for huh. many years. I didn't know then that he had CBI. I don't know that his family knew then. I think it was a later diagnosis. Um, he was um, a typical kiddo through toddlerhood and then started having um, seizures and had, you know, severe epilepsy. Um, and so his CBI was related to that. And, te- you know, teachers don't have favorites, but what <laughs> we do, he, he was my favorite. Um you know, when I went to buy like new toys for the pool or whatever, I think about what he would like. And I have one memory of him wanting to show a new skill to his dad. And I and I pointed, I pointed out where his dad was sitting on the bench so that he could sort of tell him something or tell him to come over and watch. And, you know, think about a pool. I mean, it's just all, sure. it's still so loud, so complex, so so loud and everything's the same color and just, um, and then faces, Um, So I I remember him just turning, just scanning, you know, turning his head left to right and just not being able to locate his dad. And then, you know, I beckoned, like motioned for his dad to come over. And when his dad was right at the pool edge and sort of bent over to talk to us, I remember his face so clearly and it still looked like he wasn't sure if it was his dad.
0: There you go. That's interesting. So (laughs) I have a whole new perspective
1: on all of that now. Um, I'm still friends with his mom. I don't know. I don't I don't remember how we got talking about it. But she said, you know, Ian has CVI. And it's this and we went they went straight to Dr. Roman that story, right? (laughs) So she put me on the path.
0: You were aware of it because of your research and your relationship with this family. And then how did you find out about Perkins? Because you did end up there for evaluation.
1: Yep, that was our neurologist, um completely. So but like I said, we only see her twice a year unless something unless there's a reason to see her more. Um we love her, but we want to keep it at twice a year. Um <laughs> so we saw her, you know, scheduled visit and, you know, you, you go through the list and I told her, you know, something is going on visually. Um, and I knew, by then, I knew by then that it was probably CVI, but you know how you can, you know, you talk yourself into something and then you can talk yourself out of something and I, maybe I'm crazy. And so I said, you know, something with, you know, sort of processing vision, like he just doesn't respond the way that you would expect. And she did not miss a beat and said, he is at risk for CVI because of the PVL. I want you to go to the low vision clinic at Perkins. Mm-hmm. and so she referred us there and i called and made the appointment um, um but and then you know dr cran was great um and he's the he's the doctor at, at perkins yes low vision the low vision clinic at perkins yep um with i think he's with new england eye but he's he it does the low vision clinic at perkins he's located there um he always has two students with him um which is I think awesome because it's, you know, each year it's or each time we've visited, it's two different students. It's two mm-hmm. new students. Um, so I just think about,
0: that is great. It's exposing yeah. medical students and, and residents to to something that they might not get a lot of or any of, um, you know, experience with in their coursework. Exactly.
1: CVI, CVI. Exactly. Like that's that many more people, right? That many more professionals who, I mean, they're getting it from the best. So yeah. Um, that's great to hear. Yeah, It, it is great. Um, Dr. Cran was awesome. He's, he knows his stuff, man. Um, he is to the point, right? He's, he's business. Mm-hmm. Um, he's all, he's all business, but still really sweet, and he knows how to make it work for the kids. I mean, you have to figure he's... Mason's probably a simpler case. Um, he, Dr. Cran sees kids with, you know, all sorts of varying diagnoses who may or may not be able to communicate what they're seeing um, or participate in all the tasks. And he just, you know... It's it's a long avow, and Mason was tired by the end for sure. But Dr. Cran just he he knows how to move it along, he knows how to make it work for the kid, he knows how to keep them engaged. He was really good. Um, and he said that Mason was textbook CBI. <laughs> <laughs> so after you know, I was I was walking into that appointment, I was hundred percent convinced that I was crazy. And why am I here? <laughs> and he's going to tell me, like, you're an overreacting, worried mom. Yeah, it's just your own demon. sort of. We just had waited so long for it, and I was so worked up. And then he was like, yeah, textbook.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you're relieved in some respects, but also, I'm sure, frustrated, because if you have a textbook case of CVI, why why don't more people who you've come in contact with, more providers see that i
1: know yeah it's just like if there's a list it's just like check check check, checkity check same with the cp diagnosis right right you didn't even touch him yet he's like all right so I'm kids with cp like yep obviously <laughs> he gives really thorough fabulous reports um you know on all aspects um it's a really in-depth functional vision evaluation um, and he also provides resources, you know, for the parents and educators, like, here's what you should read. Here are the sites, websites you should seek out. Here are, um, just, just lots of, it's, you know, it's not just a report of here's what we found. It's like, here are resources, mm-hmm. um, which is great. And we have seen him yearly. Do you remember what resources he recommended? Um, CBI Scotland. Everything Dr. Roman. Um, Little Bear Seas, I think,
0: was on there. You know what? If you could look later and send me a list of what he did recommend, then when I write up the show notes, we'll just kind of put links to all those things in case there's one thing on the list that people haven't seen, you know? That diagnosis day, kind of a a turning point.
1: It was. It was. um, It was really... We still didn't get services right away mm-hmm. or, you know, a range of valor, uh, you know, it, it's still been a, a process, but it was really helpful to know what we were actually dealing with. Um, it was really helpful to have all of those resources and be able to make changes on our own or, you know, just be a, just understand him better, right? Yeah. And just be able to make tiny changes in our daily lives that, that had a big impact.
0: One, one story that you told me sticks out along those lines and that is library story time. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know that a lot of people that'll resonate with them, but you want to tell people about that? Yeah. So,
1: you know, at the time we lived in this adorable small town, you know, just the perfect, the perfect small town. Did you ever watch Gilmore Girls? I I did a little bit. Okay. We lived in Stars Hollow, Jess. Okay. We, we really did. So just this idyllic little town and tons of, you know, fabulous things for the kids to do through the library. And so I, I was I tried to take them, the boys, to the story time, get out of the house, something on the schedule, see some other kids their age all the other moms would always say like, you know, that the moms they met in library story time became their mom friends for life. (laughs) Um, so it just was a disaster every time, you know, partly twins. So you're always running They go, they instinctively go in separate directions. Um, (laughs) they were just busy boys, but Mason just, he just hated it. He hated it. Um, and he did not want to stay in that room he just grumped and moaned in through fits and kicked and he threw chairs the like little wooden preschool chairs he was like pick the chair up and throw it mind i mean that's how angry he was right like this kid with all these diagnoses Ooh not walking up or downstairs yet. And he picks up a chair and checks it across the room. And now I know, you know, he couldn't see the book, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> too many people, um, there are too many people in a room. The room is too small. There were there was a mural on every wall, which like a local artist did, and it was beautiful, but it was, you know, a nature mural. So it was like leaves and flowers and deer and all kinds of animals. And it went, you know, three quarters of the way up the wall. So probably his entire view there was a small room and a lot of little kids and noise and just no wonder right no wonder he did not want to be in there he would go to the library and play trains out in the little separate area play at the train table he did not tolerate story time at all I would try and then I would give take a break and then I would try again and I would take a break and I would I actually even worked with um their youth librarian there is fantastic and she helped I worked with her on setting up a sensory friendly story time before we totally knew the, the CVI stuff. I thought that maybe he was overwhelmed for other reasons. Right. And so they started holding this sensory friendly story time and, and she did a lot of great things. And he did have more success with that. Um, they moved it to a downstairs room, which was a lot bigger and not a mural on every wall. And she used a visual schedule to show like what we were going to do it was a lot less story she would tackle like one book right one book um movement breaks and she did a lot of activities with this felt board and he liked that and looking back i know it's like solid color felt against solid color felt so it was in tactile mm-hmm. um, and, and so the the kids would get to come up and like you know place their piece that they had been holding on to. So it was participatory, something that he could look forward to. So, you know, he still needed a lot of support. Luckily, Logan was pretty independent by that point um, and could just sort of chill and and be there and participate on his own. And but we, we did have some success.
0: I love that story because shows you, cluing into his needs and then someone stepping up to the plate and getting creative about how to make. Yeah, you know, story time or a lesson accessible so that everyone can participate, and then it helped a lot of other kids. I'm sure.
1: You know, we ha- it didn't get; it wasn't well attended at first, but I think it just it takes a while, right, to get the word out about new things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, eventually, other other people did start coming, and it's great to also just have that space. I think where I don't know; it's not like you want to say that certain behaviors aren't welcome other places because they you know
0: they're just not understood other places so when your child throws a chair across the room you feel you feel ashamed because you think everyone's judging you and they might be a little bit because they don't understand yeah so it takes some practice to be able to anticipate (laughs) you know what's gonna set a kid off and I don't think we can ever expect ourselves to do that one hundred percent of the time. Right. So you said it took a while for for Mason to kind of get services, but he did get preschool services, right? Or did you send him to a, a private?
1: Where we were, there were no preschools with special education teachers. The closest one was about forty five minutes away, and it also um, because there's such a lack of <laughs> that sort of resource it was hard to get in there and kind of reserved for kids with more severe disabilities. Although I remember at the time thinking like this kid has, you know, his diagnoses include CP epilepsy, speech apraxia, CBI, like, and he's not, not severe enough to get into a preschool (laughs) for
0: kids with special needs. Hard to believe. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it worked out for the best. Um, He went to, the daycare at the college that I was teaching at, at the time. So daycare setting, but they, they are the most licensed and official program in that county. You know, a lot of the local preschools are two and a half hour program because you can't be, or two hours and 50 minutes, um, because you can't go longer than three, you can't go three hours, can't go longer than three hours without more significant licensing. Partly it was easy just because I was was going there multiple days a week anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And we toured and everybody, they're just all very caring, right? Um, Not necessarily special education teachers, but they have worked with hundreds of kids. Um, They have experience with lots of different kinds of kids and they're just, they were willing to learn. And so he got what they call itinerant services. So a special education teacher came to see Mason, just Mason one-on-one for a few hours a week. So it'd be like one hour per day, mm-hmm. a few days a week. And he also got speech, OT, and PT, and then eventually TBI services as well.
0: And did he enjoy his preschool experience? He
1: did two different classrooms there. And the first time that we enrolled them, um, he struggled. We did not know about the CVI then. We didn't know a lot of, he was younger and a lot of the same types of behaviors in that classroom. So I would get reports that say, like, he tackled a kid, he bit a kid, he knocked over tables, he, he, he just, he was just frustrated. And he didn't have a lot of speech then. And um, so we wound up actually pulling them out for the spring semester. And then they went back in the fall. He was older, he was in a different classroom. And so he really liked his new classroom. His teacher was just one of those really like soft, warm people, right yeah, like just just really warm, just she had a soothing voice and a really just like calm demeanor, and he just loved her so much. He actually still talks about her oh, <laughs> we've lived in Massachusetts now for almost a year. So he, and he's been out of school there for a full year. And he, you know, he still says, I miss, I miss Cindy and Dar. Um, <laughs> so, and he, he had a lot more support by then too. We made sure that he was getting support in the classroom. So the year prior, he was getting all of his services at home. And so then we, we made sure that um, he had a lot of support in the classroom. So they were only there three days a week, but Two of those days, his OT would literally meet us at the door, and I know she was staying longer than 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, she was awesome, too, intuitive and also willing to learn, and she really worked with him on sort of getting the day started and getting him integrated into the classroom you know, on a daily level. Mason tends to situate himself behind a bookcase, right? and away from everybody and play cars quietly or just go off by himself and probably because it's it's simpler now that's a lot better but before he he just would isolate himself a lot but he did not want to participate in circle time um you know his library story time basically
0: <laughs> <laughs> all over again
1: <laughs> yeah, you got to look at the book and everybody's there and you have to look at faces circle time is still a struggle for him at 5 you know, we, that that was still one of our biggest sort of things that we were tackling when school closed this year. Participation in circle time. Faces, you got to look at all those faces and the book, you know, it's not close to you and things on the wall and just, you know, it's a lot to manage. Um, but his OT was really fabulous and just instinctively um, started making some changes. So she actually started pre-teaching him the books. Well, one whatever book they were reading that morning, she would pre-teach him at breakfast. As long as we made it by breakfast, I was always like, "I got there in time." <laughs> um, so she would pre she would show him the book and, and talk about, and so he had some sense of what was going on at circle time before right. he got there. And she also started seating him like as close to the teacher as possible without being in her lap. Yeah. And so he started participating in circle time more, yeah, with nice. with her
0: support. So that was that was really cool.
1: Yeah, he made a lot of gains there.
0: You were telling that really powerful story about your swim student and um, yeah. recognizing faces. And yeah. you said to me once um, something that just really resonated: it's that people underestimate how much this face blindness impacts Mason. So, do you have any stories about how he is affected by you know not recognizing? faces or, um, you know, expressions. And how do you, how do you like people to respond to that or, or help them along? So
1: many stories, Jess.
0: (laughs) Um, Here's a quick one
1: that I didn't tell you when he was not quite four, he got lost at a football game. My daughter is a cheerleader. So she had a game And there was a playground at the field and I took the boys, you know, they don't want to sit and watch a football game. So I took the boys to the playground and I was right there. I was right there. I didn't have my phone with me. Like I wasn't looking at my phone. I wasn't, I was right there watching them. And he walked away from me and he walked across the middle of the football field during the game. (laughs) Across the
0: field while they were playing? (laughs)
1: yes trying to find me right and so you know I'm by you know I was quickly like I'm holding Logan I'm running around I'm looking for him I'm completely panicked and so I start running over toward where Jess and my mother-in-law and father-in-law were sitting and the you know I started running back toward the bleachers to get their help and Jess had just scooped Mason up from the field and she was like what did what are you doing (laughs) what are you doing and I was like I was right there and he said I couldn't find you mommy I couldn't find you mommy was he scared he was so scared yeah he was so scared and uh, you know I mean he he I don't he didn't get it that he had walked across the field during the game but like he just you know he was really scared that he didn't know where he was he didn't know where I was and I mean we're talking I was within five feet of him yeah. And I just I must have been like, you know, I was probably helping Logan. Like Logan with something. Yeah. Like, you know, not fall off whatever highest place he had climbed to. And he just he just he didn't see me and he walked away. And yeah, it was terrifying.
0: But you said that um, in school situations, you've also had teachers use daily kind of yep. signifiers to, you know, reintroduce Mason to who he's playing with at that moment. Um, how does that work?
1: when we were planning for their birthday party, we realized that he did not know the name of anybody in his class. He didn't know the names of any of the kids in his classroom. You know, he couldn't tell you who was in his class and he certainly couldn't identify them there. I I don't know how we didn't realize that before then, but we just didn't. I feel like I'm saying all these things of like, we're just clueless. Um, uh,
0: (laughs) No, if it makes you feel better, similar thing with Grace. Like, she she might know one or two uh-huh. kids but then she she'll tell me about a project and that she was working in a group and i'll ask who was in the group and unless it's one of her closest friends she usually can't tell me who it was right. yeah
1: yeah so i i mean i felt awful then um it was like their first friend party that we were planning for and didn't even know their names um so i just you know again did some research <laughs> you know, I think I reached out to some CVI parents online, then in combination with whatever I had been reading about um, prosopagnosia, which is the term for face blindness, which is probably not what's going on with Mason, right? It's more, it's a CVI and complexity and, and all those things, mm-hmm.
0: but not an isolated only, he can't recognize faces. Right, but yeah. like,
1: functionally, it's, it's the same. So I asked the teachers to start this naming technique. So I asked them to just constantly name who was near him. Um, he knew the teachers, but there were only two of them, right? And,
0: and they're much taller than the others than they're the students.
1: Taller adults <laughs> tend to have more distinct styles and personalities and and mannerisms, right? They're predictable, and and kids are not, especially when there's like a room full of four year olds with medium brown hair and like whatever was on sale at Carter's. Like they all look the same. <laughs> Yeah, so I asked them to start naming who was near him frequently um, and then to give some sort of connection, commonality, right? Or like things to learn about that friend and then an identifier for the day. So the example that I used for them was Oh, Mason, I like how you're playing trucks with Aaron. Um, You and Aaron both really love big trucks, dump trucks, etc. Aaron is wearing a yellow shirt today. And it's a little weird at first. Yet subtle enough that
0: the kids don't think it's weird. Right. Yeah.
1: Especially because preschool teachers are always sort of like slyly commenting on things in in a teacher kind of way. Yeah. Within just a few weeks, he knew... He could name four. He had like four friends. He could name four people. Cool. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, Made a huge difference. And so this year, new state, new school, shared the same naming practice with them. He had a TBI on board from pretty early in the year. She helped his teachers make a photo book, which I wasn't sure how successful the photo book would be because... Right, like if it's a bunch of pictures of faces, and he doesn't recognize faces, how, <laughs> how helpful <laughs> is that going to be? But it was, it was. I think even just you know familiarizing himself with hairstyles and whatever mm-hmm. features it is that he can use, and and hearing their names a lot. So he he got he looked at the photo book a lot in the beginning of the year. One of the things though that we struggled with was. I think, like you said, it's hard for adults to name themselves. So I've had to sort of push as far as the teachers doing that. Mm-hmm. His teachers got good at it. So he, he's in a, an integrated classroom now, and his teacher is a special education teacher. A, pa- a paraprofessional might step in from another classroom to help out, or, you know, um, the speech therapist might come over and whatever. There's a lot of people. Even things like saying hi in the hallway. You know, I had to work with his TVI on trying to explain to people like, you can't just say hi to him in the hallway. He doesn't know who you are when there's Mm -hmm. all these people in the hall. And, you know, it's loud and he's tired after the school day ends. And, you know, they think of it as a kind thing to say hello. And it is, right? But like, he should be able to be comfortable not constantly uneasy about who people are that are saying hi to him. By the time that schools closed here, you know, he knew everybody in his class and he knew his therapist and he knew, um, his teachers, a a friend that you introduced me to, um, actually gave me the phrase compensatory skills. Right. So I was talking to her about some of this stuff and she was like, he has incredible compensatory skills. I was like, you, you're right. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, Right? That's the language. That's what I was looking for. So he tracks things like who has what backpack and coats and what they like and what he knows what kind of car his friend's parents drive. Some of his little Friends, they'll wait for each other after school is over, and it's the cutest thing. They'll like hide behind the door, and they will not leave school until they get to like hug the other friend goodbye. Because they get missed one at a time Aww. when the parents pick up, and so they're like, "No, I want to wait for Mason." And it's just, you know,
0: that's adorable.
1: Love that he is loved there, um, and that he knows his
0: friends. And um, well, you did mention, and you know, this all happened before school closed, <laughs> and now here we all are at home trying to recreate an educational experience for our kids. Um, And on top of that, you have a big transition coming up because kindergarten starts in the fall. Um, So (sighs) how's that going? So
1: we haven't had our virtual IEP meeting yet. We will. We can have it virtually. And they're working through scheduling all of those. So however many they missed, in the in- initial weeks when school closed, and then however many they're missing right now. And mm-hmm. <laughs> just, they are prioritizing kids who have transitions, though. Um, the issue is, we've been pretty sure all along that he would go to our home elementary school. There's also a developmental kindergarten program at, in a different town that's still part of our district, so a different elementary school. And we Toyed with that idea, but inclusion in a classroom at our homeschool is is probably the best fit. So, originally, I mean, we were going to tour both places, but obviously that's not happening. But that's okay. Normally, kindergarten teachers would be announced around now in May, and they hold a playground night so that the kids can meet the teachers and meet some of the other kids in their class. And that's something that Would be a big deal for Mason because if we could make a few friends and hang with them over the summer, that would be so great. But you know, I'm hoping that eventually we will get a class list and maybe we can interact with them in some other Mm -hmm. way. Then he would have gotten his placement, met with his orientation mobility specialist at
0: the new school. So he was supposed to start meeting with her at the end of April, okay, at this new school to get an environmental baseline for for what he would be yeah right be- and so they were gonna go april may june july august and it's a great idea
1: even if it was just once a month you know she wanted him to start learning some of the landmarks paths to his classroom and you know it's not like a kindergartner is ever going to be alone but you know, same thing with the saying hi in the hallway. Like he deserves to feel comfortable in his surroundings and know where he is.
0: And then that gives him the opportunity to attend visually to other things going on around him if he's not having to think about where am I.
1: Right. So his ownam um, is awesome though, and she actually just this past Tuesday she um, got access. Um, she got permission to go to our elementary school and take pictures. Oh, cool! So she's gonna make work work on a book. Um, for him and we're going to start trying to learn some of the landmarks that way what else are you working
0: on since you're at home
1: so he is doing teletherapy with his TBI and um, he's really into writing wizard right now I don't know if you know that app no. um, oh, it's so great so essentially you're tracing um, letters it does like pre-writing shapes you know little squiggly lines and circles and all of those things and then it does uppercase letters lowercase letters um, and even words, and you can set your own word lists, and you can also change all of the colors and backgrounds and settings and everything. He and I have been working on um, also some word recognition stuff, so I got like a black poster board at the dollar store, <laughs> and I printed some words that are the same as his word lists on Writing Wizard, Mommy, Mama, Mason, Logan, um, Papa, I did the Roman word bubbling, mm-hmm. and he does, that does work for him. And so it's just that handful of words sort of, you know, in an array. And he really likes doing it. So we play a game of like, we, you know, Mason, he can identify always. He can find his name always. Um, he's been working on that for a long time. Um, he's getting really good at finding Logan. It's funny because he'll point to it and say brother. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he, when we were working on it, um, right, so they were wherever I would placed them. And he lickety-split was able to tell me what everyone was. He pointed to them and he said, you know, mommy, Mimi, mama, papa, whatever. And it's tricky because we have a lot of M's. Um, So I've been pointing out salient features of, you know, how that M word is different. Mm -hmm. Um, Papa is easy because it's really different. Um, But he, he, in 30 seconds, he knew all of them and he was telling me what the word was. And I was like, did you just memorize where they all are? Yep. Yep. So, just <laughs> yeah, I yeah, rearranged them, right? Obviously, he's Jill new Mason. He was so mad, and there, you know, that's when the behaviors come out, right? So, he's trying to kick the board, and he's yelling at me that he wants it like it was yesterday, which he uses yesterday for anything in the past, which is so cute. <laughs> like, no, like you did it yesterday. He's like, <laughs> And so he didn't know any of the words then, right? Because that quickly, just with us talking about the words and talking through them, he memorized where they were. He memorized the location of them. And he was actually able to put some of them back into the correct spot when I told him like which one it was. Yeah. Like that is a ridiculously strong visual memory, right? Yeah. So uh, this is what's so fascinating about CBI is like, that is an incredible skill.
0: Yeah. yeah, and there, that ability to compensate in that way is deceiving to people who don't understand. Oh, know, for sure. Yeah. yeah for sure. I know. Like
1: Yeah. I mean it looked like, right? If I if I just if I just showed you that snippet, it'd look like he was reading the words, mm-hmm, right?
0: Mm-hmm. What's he enjoying about being home? <laughs> He's getting his
1: iPad every day, which yeah. <laughs> we don't allow it on school days. <laughs>
0: So, um that's gonna you- be a hard one to back all of uh, out of you know like we're all doing that but because it's yeah. necessary and the ipad's an awesome tool also for yeah learning in the apps and different things and communicating yep. with others but yeah we're gonna have to back out of that one big time you are a lovely storyteller and i've enjoyed our conversation it's been really fun yeah me too i
1: I can't even tell you how it just uh, I don't know I've been I've been hearing your voice for at least a year now listening to the podcast episodes and it's just such a it was just such an important like connection piece for me you know
0: well the pleasure is all mine because I get to hear people's stories firsthand in depth you know in a way that other formats don't always allow for us to dig in um it's one of my favorite things I just wish I had more more time for it Kira mentioned what a stellar experience she had at the Perkins Low Vision Clinic. Of course, not all of us can travel there for annual visits, but we can all avail ourselves of the many amazing online resources Perkins School for the Blind provides. PerkinsElearning.org has a rich set of CVI continuing education. Always in awe of Perkins. Thank you so much to everyone who works there. This episode is dedicated in loving memory of Ian Bogle and his family for paving the way and speaking up about CVI.